This is the Down East EM Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Down East EM. And uh, I'm here. I'm joined by Ken Starr. I'm very excited to have you as an interviewee for this, for our topic, and we'll be going into that in a second. But just to give you a little bit of a background about Ken. So Ken is an ER doctor out of California. He's practiced emergency medicine for the last 18 years, the last eight of which, though, he started an outpatient addiction medicine program in San Luis Obispo, California. It's called the Ken Star MD Wellness Group. Now, he primarily treats opioid and alcohol use disorders, and the clinic provides intensive medical detox programs, medication-assisted treatment, partial hospitalization, and intensive outpatient treatment programs for his patients. He currently manages about 200 patients on buprenorphine and serves as the medical director of addiction medicine at the Dignity Healthcare, and that I believe, yeah, it's in Central Cal- in the Central California coast. He's board certified in both addiction medicine and emergency medicine and continues to work both in part-time in EM to pay the bills. On a personal note, though, Ken, he enjoys yoga, cycling, good beer in moderation, certainly, and traveling. He has one teenager, two cats, two dogs, a horse, and a panther chameleon named Charlie. Ken, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me. So today's topic, we're going to be talking about buprenorphine. And buprenorphine by itself is uh, subutex or buprenorphine naloxone, which is suboxone. And we're going to be talking about prescribing these medications through the emergency department. The idea of X wavering, what that is, and kind of the if or why emergency medicine doctors should be doing this. We're going to really go into the whole nine yards of this topic. Ready to get started, Ken? You bet. So I have kind of reviewed this topic. I've had an opinion about the idea. And obviously, we in emergency medicine, we are bathed in the opioid crisis on a daily basis. Yes. Can I have to say that Suboxone, Methadone, these were therapies that generally a year or two ago, I really kind of frowned down upon. I saw them as kind of trading one addiction for another and believe that, you know, opioid withdrawal, it's a non- life-threatening condition that patients could, you know, sort of quote-unquote tough it out. What are your thoughts on that line of thinking? Well, you know, having been raised in the camp of emergency medicine myself, I wholeheartedly agree with you. And even once I started the addiction medicine program and was and was practicing medication-assisted treatment and treating patients with buprenorphine, I felt like it had no role in the ER, mainly because uh, there's a lot of education that goes into counseling patients about starting and being maintained in Suboxone or Buprenorphine. So it really just didn't seem like the ER was you know, the right place for that. <clears throat> so initially, I'd say, I'd, I'd be like, yeah, Buprenorphine's great for people in recovery, but the emergency room is not the place to start it. And of course, with the epidemic sweeping, I, I've changed my, my mind on that 180 degrees. Regarding, um, you know, really, why are we doing anything with medication-assisted treatment? Why, why don't we just have all these people just get clean? Um, you know, I, I think that I, I understand where you're coming from, and, and I, I think that's, you know, one perspective. But, you know, the reality is that um, there's probably uh, one of the most heavily evidence-based treatments in all of medicine is, is medication-assisted treatment, primarily with methadone. But we know that people who are involved in a medication-assisted treatment program, Suboxone or Methadone, really do a lot better, right? They tend not to overdose and die. They tend to avoid HIV, syphilis. They have less health problems. They cause less 
um, problems to society, less, less theft, less incarceration. They cost taxpayers uh, less in lost wages. So there's a lot of socioeconomic as well as um, medical reasons to provide medication-assisted treatment. But for the non-addicted person, you'd be like, well, look at most people, a lot of people get sober and just, you know, clean up. But having taken care of these patients for, for so many years, I, I've really come to, to really learn that some of these people, they've had their wiring changed, man. They, they're not going back. And there's people who have been on opiates for 10, 15, 20 years that uh, cannot tolerate the uh, you know, coming off of them, can't tolerate dose reductions, can't tolerate not having opiates in their brain. So I guess the answer is that it's uh, in, a, in a perfect world, sure. And some people do, right? Don't forget that most people who get clean and do come off opiates do it without anybody's help. They don't go on Suboxone. They don't go on methadone. They don't take detox meds. Statistically, like 70% of those people just walk away. They're disgusted. They don't want to live like that anymore. So we won't even hear about those. But for a lot of patients, they, they need medication-assisted treatment. And the spotlight in, in the last few years, as you mentioned, is certainly on the emergency departments. That's interesting. I, it brings to mind a lot of things that we don't really tend to think about in our little bubble. We think about the ER. We think about this is life-threatening, not life-threatening. If you don't have a life-threatening condition, you know, go and get out of my emergency department. But these patients, one they come back, right? They come back again and again. They come back with their abscesses and their newly diagnosed HIV or their sequelae of HIV, their overdoses that need reversal and their pulmonary edema from Narcan. We see them time and time again. So on a systems-based level, on a societal level, getting these people clean is good. But I also think that we are doing ourselves a service if we can increase the number of patients that maybe not after an overdose, but after a complication of opioid use or people coming in specifically requesting detoxification, if we can get them on the right path, we're saving ourselves work. We're saving ourselves consequences, time, uh, ED overcrowding, all those things. It's like if someone comes in in DKA over and over and over again, you know, we're going to give them the education and the resources to check their blood sugar, to try to keep themselves from the consequences of that disease process where we don't have that mind frame in this addiction. Right. Right. It's um it's a good place to introduce recovery and get people cute kind of teed up for recovery. Perfect. Yeah. That's a that's a good way to sort of phrase it simply. So we're again we're gonna be talking mostly about buprenorphine and it seems like that has gotten a lot of press recently. You know, certainly the opioid epidemic is everywhere now. It's not just our world, but it's on the news, it's all over the place in terms of everyone in society is being affected. But the kind of new player in that is this idea of buprenorphine. And for us in the emergency department, maybe that's something that's in our toolbox, something that we should be familiar with. So in reviewing that medication, let's do a little pharmacology there then. Okay. Buprenorphine, it, it's a partial opioid agonist. But actually to, to state it simply like that is, is to oversimplify, right? It's a pretty complicated medicine and I may need you to explain it a little further. I'll do the basics. It's a partial agonist at the mu opioid receptor and an antagonist at the kappa receptor. So at the mu receptor, buprenorphine has a really high affinity, but weak or kind of partial activation, if you will. So if someone's acutely high on heroin, it will displace or outcompete that in the body for the mu receptor and can even precipitate withdrawal in someone that's, again, had just injected heroin. 
But it's important to note that the patients can, I guess, get high, quote-unquote, on buprenorphine, especially if it's injected. It has the potential to do so because it does have this agonism of, of the mu receptor. Now, the kappa, that one's a little more confusing for me. It's thought to play a role, I guess, in its anti-indictive properties of buprenorphine. But do you mind explaining some of these things, some of these ideas a little further for us? Yeah, so exactly right. I mean, the way to think about buprenorphine, or I just say suboxone because it's easier, but obviously sure. trade trade name. But, yeah, okay. you know, so, so suboxone, it's going to bind that receptor. It's a much stronger magnet at that receptor. So it's going to displace any other opiates that are there. So that's why if somebody has opiates in their system and they take suboxone, they're going to go into precipitated withdrawal. It binds. It's a stronger magnet. It has a much stronger affinity, but much less activity. So imagine, you know, it's almost like a key that fits right in that lock. You're like, oh, this is the right key. And then it doesn't open the door. Or locking or walking, you know, you're in a brightly lit room and now the room is lit by two candles. So, so it, you know, it gives you these levels that target withdrawal and craving but are not stimulating enough for, you know, for people with a high tolerance or for euphoria. Um, so that's kind of the precipitated withdrawal. That's confusing for some people. So if you have opiates in your system, you take suboxone, you get precipitated withdrawal. If you have suboxone in your system, you take opiates, you just have a blunted response. And as you mentioned accurately, you know, the whole thing, well, what, and this confuses everybody. It's like, well, what about the naloxone? The naloxone's the blocker, the buprenorphine's that. No, it's not. The naloxone is really in there to appease the government safety standards, this risk mitigation. So when, when, the, when suboxone is taken appropriately sublingual, the naloxone is not absorbed at all. So it has no role, has no purpose. It's purely there to discourage injection drug use or melting it down and shooting it up. In which case, the naloxone would be activated intravenously. Okay? So... In the, it, all the properties of the medicine are the are the sort of the uh, the partial agonist properties of buprenorphine, not the naloxone, because generic monotherapy product of just buprenorphine or Subutex uh, has the same property, right? It's the same buprenorphine. It doesn't have the naloxone in it, but the um, naloxone in it makes it a little bit more deterrent, right? It makes it a little bit um, less abused. So, and I've had patients shoot up the pills, the generic and, and the strips, and I guess they both work, I'm told. So don't tell anybody that, but I think it's really, I think it's really there for more marketing, like, hey, this is safer. This is a safer product. And so getting into that a little bit, something that's confused me is, so let's talk Subutex then, right? If you take Subutex, however they do it and melt it down and shoot it, will, right. you, get, will you get high with that just very weak agonism? If you're opiate naive, yes, right? If you don't have the tolerance, then absolutely, sure. It's a synthetic opiate. It'll be as high as a kite. Just as if you were to take buprenorphine sublingually and you're opiate naive, you'd, you'd, you'd get a, you'd, absolutely, you, you would get high. But when somebody is opiate dependent and they already have a tolerance, they're getting much less effect much than these medicines. I mean, the ceiling effect on these medicines are just much lower. So any self-respecting drug addict or opiate addicted patient who's taking buprenorphine, like buying it on the street, they're doing that just between doses so they don't go into withdrawal or what are they're going into withdrawal, then they're using it. So anyone who's is, is even reasonably stable on, on any doses of uh, suboxone or buprenorphine isn't getting high on it. But as you mentioned, you're right. It is a synthetic opiate. It itself causes dependence and will result in withdrawal. And 
if you take a higher dose than you're used to or you initiate treatment, you absolutely could get euphoria. Okay. And that kind of fits anecdotally and, and try not to use that too often. But the patients that come in that have shot Suboxone are the ones that were kind of recreational pill poppers, don't use it all the time, um, every once in a while will, and got their hands on Suboxone and shoot it to get that little bit of high. Right. Does that make sense then? Yeah, it, and that would go away. If they continued to do that for two or three days, it would go away. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. And then what about this Kappa? Is that worth knowing as an ER physician or should we just kind of skip over it? It's even a I can't say I understand it, but where I do think the Kappa um, receptor plays is that say you have somebody in full withdrawal in the ER, no doubt they're opiate dependent. You check a cures report or, or what we call the state prescribing database out here. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're, you know, they're injection drug users, you know they are, you've seen them before, whatever. And there's no doubt in your mind they're in full opiate withdrawal. And you think, hey, I'm just going to give them a big slug of Suboxone or, you know, or buprenorphine or IM, buprenex or whatever your facility has. And you do that and all of a sudden they're not feeling better. They're feeling worse, you know, like, wait a second. I thought this was like a cold drink of water on a hot day. What's wrong? It seems like the kappa receptors get activated like early, like first before the mu opiate receptors. So they get like the dysphoria, like worse before they kind of get better. Okay. So that's, that's, so that's the only that's the only role I see in this whole process is that when you introduce Suboxone, even if you know they're going to be on a high dose, you, you do it slowly. So so even that patient in full withdrawal, I would recommend starting with like two milligrams or four milligrams sublingual. And then, you know, wait an hour, then they're going to do better, then they're going to feel much better. Then if you want to give them eight or 16, go for it. That's fine. But that's really, the, in my practice, the only place the Kappa plays plays into this. Okay. That makes enough sense for me to to feel satisfied. Thank you. Um, And then you started talking about dosing a little bit. So let's get into kind of the meat and potatoes of that. And then we'll get into some of the evidence as to where we should be using it and how. Okay. So the doses of, of buprenorphine, we, you said there's kind of, there's the two, the four and the eight is often the standard. And we're talking about Suboxone here, the buprenorphine, naltrexone. Tell me about your sort of dosing and dosing regimes that you use. Well, you know, the, when you, when you have a regular opiate, like a regular straight, garden variety opiate, Norco, dilated, fentanyl, morphine, heroin, that line, it's a straight, it's a straight line. That dose response is a straight line. So two is twice as strong as one, 10 is twice as strong as five. You imagine hundred is twice as strong as 50. It just goes straight up till you stop breathing. Mm-hmm. With buprenorphine, it's, it's sort of like sort of this logarithmic line where you do have a dose response, obviously two, three, four milligrams, you have a steep response. When you get to eight milligrams, that's where it starts to shoulder off, meaning about 80% of the effectiveness of buprenorphine is the first eight milligrams, okay? So that's why you see eight a lot. That's a common dose that people are on is eight. So if, you, if I give somebody eight milligrams, you know, 80, 85% of those opiate receptors are bound. And this was shown in uh, PET scan studies. If I go up to, say, 16 milligrams, you think, oh, well, that's twice the dose. It's not. It's not 100% more dose. It's actually about... 15, 20% more dose, and then 100% of the receptors are saturated. So in, in the addiction world, we kind of consider 16 milligrams of full dose and an eight, eight milligrams sort of a, um, a mostly full dose. When patients are transferring over from, you know, it obviously depends on their habit. If, if, you're, if you have somebody who's on, you know, two or three Norcos a day, that's, you know, 
typically not somebody who needs to be on 16 milligrams. This is more of just the art and having done this for years. Sure. But if somebody's you know shooting heroin, then you know it's not rocket science. You, you I would probably just put them on. You, I would say, hey, the the least is going to be eight. The most is going to be 16. It, it, it is approved for up to 24 milligrams. So you will see patients on, on 24 milligrams a day. There's absolutely no reason anybody, for any reason, should be on more than 24 milligrams a day. Um, in the old days, I would say, going back, you know, in the early days of, of Suboxone, it was actually approved up to 32 milligrams a day. And so people who have been on Suboxone many years might have been on that dose. But I'd say there's newer information that has kind of proven that 16 is really a full dose. I've inherited patients who came into my practice on 24, and um, and so there, and then I kind of worked to try to get them to 16. Mostly it's psychological. When you have somebody going from 24 to 16, it's more of just their head game of, of how they really need more. But there's no objective withdrawal going from 24 to 16. Um, but, you know, talking about the ER, the course is, well, what exactly, what's, what do I do? What's the recipe? You know, I have somebody in withdrawal. I wanna, I wanna give them some medicine. Mm-hmm. Like I said earlier, I think starting with like two to four milligrams sublingual is certainly safe. You want to wait. You know, make sure you don't precipitate withdrawal. This should feel a little bit better. Then I probably would give eight milligrams sublingual. Um, watch them for a little while, and then I probably would give another eight. So here's what's interesting about Suboxone, and I had said this on 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 another show. Suboxone is the ketamine of opiates. So if I give you more and more and more Suboxone, you don't get more and more and more high. Remember, there's this, there's this governor effect on this. There's a ceiling effect, right? What happens is just it's going to last longer. So when you get more and more ketamine, people don't get more dissociated. It just lasts longer, right? Yeah, okay. So when you get more and more ketamine, it just lasts longer. So the thinking now among some of our, our West Coast um, docs and um, some people at Highland are they're giving people in the ER 32 milligrams of Suboxone. The reason is they know they can't get them into a program for two or three days, and they want something to last that long. So if you give higher doses, and I'd say you know 24 milligrams is a high dose, you know they're you're gonna you're gonna avoid them going back into a draw for three days. That's pretty nice. It's most communities it's gonna take that long to get them into something. So I like that because it gives these folks a kind of a taste of wow, I feel okay. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, maybe I'll, maybe, and, and we know from the studies that they're more likely to stay in recovery. Actually, if you can introduce it, uh, patient to Suboxone, so the dosing is a little all over the map. I don't want to overly simplify it, but I'd say eight's eight's uh, kind of a starting dose, a safe dose. You're not going to overdose anybody on eight milligrams. Um, I'd say twenty four is probably the most I would use in the ER. I think most the standard average dose of people just walking around on Suboxone is sixteen milligrams. Okay. That that's a good simplified version, I think, because it, it yeah. does. It gets very complicated. We talk about almost like, is that a loading dose? How does that work? So the reason right. why you hear of that kind of dose, then then you trial to see how they handle an eight milligrams of lingual. They do well, and then I've heard you give it again so that they can get through tomorrow, kind of thing. And really, what we're doing here is kind of dealing with like a half life issue where you're loading them, and then that will sort of slowly metabolize off as you're describing. Right. Okay. Yeah, so I, I think 16 milligrams would be fine. I mean, I've seen some of the emergency department protocols just at eight. I mean, look at, they're going to feel way better on eight milligrams of Suboxone than they are with whatever else you would have given them, right? Whatever your standard opiate withdrawal uh, d- protocol de jour is, whether it's clonidine or hydroxazine, 
I mean, eight milligrams of Suboxone is going to be, you know, they're going to be like floating in the pool of like comfort compared to what, you know, these other alternatives. Although it may not be perfect, but, um, but you know, you're not reinforcing it. You know, that, that's kind of a point I want to make. It's like I would never give somebody an opiate withdrawal methadone or norco or morphine it's like why you know i mean i i just would never think to do that in the er so uh i would just give them you know detox meds right i have my little cocktail and we could talk about that but um but now i feel like suboxone's really not you're not really reinforcing their substance use they're not enjoying a suboxone you're really suboxone really just quiets withdrawal and craving that's what suboxone mm-hmm. does and that's the whole antagonism that whole receptor binding is is that it's just has this interesting pharmacology where it just uh, hits sort of withdrawal and craving you're mm-hmm. not giving them like you're not giving a big slug of opiate and saying okay see you tomorrow you know right right yeah in in our opioid uh well you know, people that have been bathing in opioids for a long time you're saying that that the amount that suboxone or buprenorphine is is hitting that receptor is just staving off the 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 withdrawals. It's not getting them high, really, and it's not reinforcing the opioid physical dependence or addiction. Right. Okay. Yeah, it's kind of hard to process because I think people are like, "Well, you're what you're talking about. You're giving a synthetic, powerful opiate." But again, that the pharmacology is really it's really different. I mean, when you the initial dose, as the levels go up, you do you can get into that range of of you know pleasant euphoria if somebody's opiate naive Mm -hmm. but if you look at where the half-life where it kind of takes you in terms of nanograms per milliliter it really is just targeting craving and withdrawal so i think that it's i think the most humane thing to do for somebody in acute opiate withdrawal would be to give them a dose of of suboxone um and not you know muck around with stuff that we've been using the last you know 30 years yeah so but that that's perfect because that's kind of where my interest in this topic came from was kind of uh, talking about managing opioid withdrawal. And it's interesting that we're kind of, you know, buprenorphine or, or uh, suboxone, there's kind of two things that are going on, right? And it's, and it can actually manage both, it seems like. One is the treatment of acute withdrawal symptoms, and two is the maintenance of sobriety. And it functions in both, really. Is that is that a wrong assumption or would you agree? <laughs> Oh man, no, it's right. And it's what's great is that you, when you see a patient who's, and we don't get the, the 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 opportunity to do this just working in the ER, but when you see a patient who's who's been you know using pills or heroin for a long time, the short half life is the short half life of that, how and and the rapidity of onset is is what's reinforcing for addiction, right? When medicines come on quickly and then they go off quickly, it reinforces these addictive behaviors. Sure. And when now you're putting somebody on, say buprenorphine i don't have a ton of experience with methadone because we don't do that as an outpatient in my clinic but you put somebody on suboxone and all of a sudden you you follow them up like five or seven days later and they are crystal clear and they're like doctor i have not felt this normal in years and they're completely fluent completely just dialed in it's like i don't i don't feel high i just feel totally normal because their brain is not yo-yoing up and down with mm-hmm. opiates that last four hours and then go away and then four hours are going away and it's having this neurochemical you know swells and storm of just you know dopamine and norepinephrine and withdrawal you know it's something like a 37 hour half-life right so it's like they can dose suboxone once a day and they can feel better than they've had in years and then the ideally is 
you know, get them on the lowest dose they need and then just set it and forget it for a while. And then I like to gradually take, you know, take it down over time. But that's, you know, that's a kind of a different conversation. So, mm-hmm. yeah, you're, you know, these are, again, we're not talking about giving it to opiate, you know, naive patients, uh, just giving, using, you know, you're not taking someone with a broken leg and saying, okay, take Suboxone for the next three days, right? right. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, it, it, you know, it, the, the medicines are not causing euphoria. They're, they're, they have these um, governor kind of gas pedal, you know, limitations on them that are safe to prescribe, which is why the whole data 2000 waiver came out, because now we can use medicines safer than methadone. They don't have to be seen every day. You can give a month of medications at a time and have people follow up. Perfect. It sounds ideal. So let's let's talk about, you know, the evidence behind this. Let's talk a little bit about um, the support of some of the the claims and the, the idea of, of this medicine actually working for patients. So, you know, in researching this topic, I actually, you know, it's not as easy to find the data as I would have wanted. Mm-hmm. You find, you know, an RCT of 35 patients. You find a case control series of, you know, 52 people. What data is there that buprenorphine is actually helping these opioid addicted patients? Well, I mean, there was that one ER study, right? It was Anafre out of Yale, I think, something like that, where she showed uh, that uh, the, the introduced ER patients to Suboxone and patients were more likely to um, to participate in recovery and be sober like 30 days out. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's I, the one yeah, that's I'm the most recent press. I feel, yeah, right? so there's that one. Um, I don't, uh, and I know that there was a paper that looked at. Uh, it compared, you know, buprenorphine to just PRN meds, and those patients did better. Um, most of the most of the med, most of the medicines, uh, sorry, most of the papers, of course, have been on methadone over the years. Right. That's a, that's where you see the when you kind of research the topic. There's um, I found one really comparing buprenorphine to clonidine, and that there's a greater percentage of people, um, you know, that maintained uh, detoxification treatment when they were on buprenorphine. Um, but most of them are comparing it directly to methadone, which doesn't really enlighten me in the way I right. because we're not going to be using that medication in the emergency department. Right. Yeah, and 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 I know some of the studies, if not almost all the studies, are, have been looking at residential patients. Like they'll look at buprenorphine versus uh, naloxone or Vivitrol, and they'll look at buprenorphine taper versus you know methadone. So there's not uh, a lot of good outpatient sort of uh, ER studies with buprenorphine. But there are, there are a few, I think you, you mentioned that one and there's, uh, and then the one that just showed that it was better than PRN meds. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have a couple from, I think two from the same data set from an Iranian group that I'll I'll put in the show notes and um, one comparing it, you know, saying that was as effective as methadone 60, which is pretty impressive to, to compare to that medication at that dose. So we'll put some of those in the show notes. So there's there's data to support it, but certainly not the large multi-center RCT um, that we may want or that we kind of hold ourselves to as sort of quality of evidence. Hopefully with the amount of um, addiction that we're seeing and the spotlight that's being put on it, there'll be more coming down the pike. Right. And then there was um, quite a few papers going back many years that just showed that uh, people did better on maintenance buprenorphine than they did uh, uh, compared to those who tapered. Mm-hmm. That yeah. the, re- the relapse rate was higher when they were tapered relatively quickly. Yeah, exactly. Versus mm-hmm. people who are just in maintenance. Gotcha. Okay. And then, so you mentioned this X wavering. Tell me, tell our audience a little bit about X wavering. 
what it is and you know do the e, do you think the average em doc should have this or do this yeah so the x waiver is just this dea requirement where you do uh you know this kind of silly um you know online class i think it's supposed to be eight hours you can do it in person, I guess, at some addiction conferences. It's really just an introduction to – I mean, your average ER doctor is absolutely more than capable of, you know, nailing this out. I mean, this is not rocket science. It's really an introduction to Suboxone, how this works, what the risks are, what the benefits are, a little bit about the pharmacology, some case examples. And it just kind of, uh, you know, make sure that you have some degree of sort of knowledge. You take a little test. I want to say it's like an eight-hour course – and then you get a, what's called an X waiver. So uh, an X waiver just is an X now in front of your DEA number. So if your DEA number is like BS62222 or something, now you're XBS62222. Okay. It allows you to prescribe buprenorphine as an outpatient is what it does. In your first year you get it, I think you're allowed 30 patients to manage in your first 12 months. And then you can... Um, submitted an application, I think, I think you can get up to 100 patients after that. Okay. And then after you've done that for a year, you can get an application to do up to 275 patients. Hmm. Okay. And so that, that umbrella covers emergency medicine. Well, it, it does. Now, now, here's what's important. If, you want, if you're an ER doctor and you want to give a dose of Suboxone or buprenorphine in the ER, you do not need an X waiver. Yeah, that's important to right. state. That's important to know. So let's get that cleared up because that's very confusing. You, if you want to write a prescription for Suboxone on somebody leaving the ER, you need the X waiver. So this three-day rule, which is confusing to a lot of people, that the DEA has this three-day rule. Well, I can prescribe up to three days. You can give up to three days of medicine, but legally the patient would have to come to the ER, get a dose of medicine, go home come back to the ER the next day, get a dose of medicine. So you can only administer that in the ER. So ER doctors and hospitalists do not need to be x waivered to administer buprenorphine in the hospital or inpatient setting or in the ER. But you do need that to write a prescription for it. Gotcha. Okay. So much like, I mean, let's use the analogy of an alcohol uh, withdrawal patient. You, they start in, you know, they have a CWAS score of nine or 10 and you start on your uh, benzodiazepines, you figure out the dose that they need. You've given your doses through the ER, but then you want to give them the taper. You want to give them what they need to get in to the detox program, which isn't going to happen tomorrow. You know, it usually takes three, four, five, depends on your practice environment. To do that prescription here for the Suboxone, you have to be X waiver. To do the treatment to get the patient feeling chill and, and okay and no longer experiencing withdrawal, you do not. Right. So you, you would administer Suboxone in the ER, get the patient out of withdrawal, feeling okay. You could have them come back the next day to the ER, which is actually what some programs do. They actually use the ER, kind of a little um, part of the ER to in, what's called induce, to do induction for Suboxone. Highland is doing that, um, hospital in Oakland. Okay. Um, but you cannot write a discharge prescription without being wavered. Gotcha. Okay. So... Ideally, somebody in the group, you know, has an X waiver that can write a discharge prescription or like, for example, like I'm acting as the medical director for addiction medicine services for three hospital campus here in California. So in the hospitalists who I don't think any of them are wavered. So if the hospitalists want to discharge somebody on Suboxone, I have to, I have to go in and write the discharge prescription. I see. Okay. And you can now, do that that to- way without seeing the patient? 
Uh, I could, yeah. I can also just go see the patient and write it. Right. But that's that's kind of where we came up with this. Well, and just use a heavier dose of, just use a heavier dose and hit them heavier with Suboxone when they're in the ER, and then you know they can follow up with you know XY clinic in two or three days and they'll be okay. And they'll still have it in their system. They don't have to come back to the ER. Sure. I'm not looking for reasons to ever. I'm never looking for reasons to come back to the ER for services. <laughs> no, absolutely right? not. Yeah, and right. that and that kind of brings up one of the one of the arguments possibly against using this uh, medication, you know, and it is, unfortunately, it's a medication that is sometimes considered sought after, sometimes abused, as we mentioned. It's sometimes, you know, poppers will use it if they, they get their hands on it, but don't use drugs regularly. But what is the potential for your department to kind of become the, the druggy shop in town, if you will, if everyone kind of coming in looking for Suboxone here and they, they can get a score through your ER? Well, First of all, you know, most important thing to remember is that, you know, opiate dependent patients, certainly IV drug users who are using heroin, they don't want Suboxone. Right. Right. They don't want it. I mean, so that's, they just don't want it. Um, Onofre study showed that uh, the ER bounce back rate and recidivism rate was not increased. So the study showed that people didn't actually come back anymore for it. Um, also, you're not giving discharge prescriptions for it, the other thing. And, 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 and lastly, you know, you're documenting, you have to document the person's in withdrawal. So you're going to do an objective um, cow score, clinical opiate withdrawal score, mm-hmm. and which is easy to do. I mean, it's like 10 questions or something. It takes um, two minutes. And you can say, no, you're not enough withdrawal, right? Because you you can't get it. Mm-hmm. So you're going to have these people who are going to, you know, being clearly objective withdrawal that you can measure that maybe have a, a cow's above eight, or 10, and then you can give them a dose. So it's not like dental pain, right? Sure. It's like, oh, dental pain, oh, really? It hurts, yeah. Don't, don't your teeth always look like that? <laughs> um, right, right. So, you know, there, there isn't, you can do an objective cow score, and you can say they have withdrawal or not. Okay. You know? So you're not writing discharge prescriptions. You're, you're, if at most, you're going to give somebody a dose in the ER who's documented in withdrawal and has established substance use history. Okay. And then you also mentioned you, there's evidence that in – in departments that use it, they're not seeing increased visitation rates right. for it. That's enough for me. Right. Anyway. That's good to know. Yeah, the best study that's looked at it, and that's not what it was made to look at, but it didn't show any increased ER visits for that. Okay. For that. Um, are, you, are you guys using Suboxone in the ER? We collectively as a, as a group, I would say, are not. Um, we're kind of, you know, individual dealer's choice cocktail of clonidine and and uh, gabapentin and anorax and things like that. But um, individual prescribers, I think, um, are on occasion. Yeah. And I think what's what's prevented the groups that I work with here, because I kind of just float between a few different places, is that the ER docs would em- would embrace it if they knew that there was follow-up for it. Like, like we have, we don't really have any consistent, guaranteed, I know you're going to see this, you know, I know you're going to see Dr. Ken Starr tomorrow in his clinic, and he wants him to give you this today. It's always like, well, you could go to the methadone clinic. You could call the county. Good luck. Here's some resources. So that's, I think, what's prevented RER docs from really embracing it because they don't really want to load them up on something that kind of needs some, you know, ideally would, would, get, some, would get some follow-up. You know, they're, they're, they're just fine giving them the clonidine and gabapentin and wishing them well. But I think as we, if, we can, if we can develop the follow-up pathways and make it more seamless, uh, I think you'd be easier to justify and implement Suboxone in the ER. Right. 
Yeah, so that's perfect kind of to, I think, what would be the kind of last element, the last piece of this puzzle is what community resources do we need really to for this to be successful? You know, the model that has been proposed like by the American Board of Addiction Medicine and SAMHSA is this hub and spoke model, meaning you have lots of places like outpatient clinics, urgent cares, primary care doctors, ERs, who can identify and initiate buprenorphine for opiate dependence and then refer them to the hub, which is the center that can manage them. And and I guess I guess what's good about that is, you know, opiate the problem is that opiates are killing a hundred people a day, right? I mean, this is such a, a massive, overwhelming, destructive force in our society that it's okay if urgent cares and primary care docs and ERs just identify it and give a dose and refer them. It's like, that's fine. We'll take it. It's better than nothing. Just because you can't do everything doesn't mean you can't do something. So if you can have a, a just a place to refer them, like we're developing just like, a, a, you know, a, the care manager or social worker or case manager in the ER has these resources. The, our community um, county program has agreed to follow up these patients within 48 hours, made room for them. Our methadone clinic has agreed to follow up ER referrals within 48 hours um, or, or private doctors or whoever. You know, it, it, it does take a village, but um, you need to have the ability to identify Who's at risk, right? And ER doctors can do that. Wow, you, you might not survive at this behavior. If you keep this up, let's start this um, and, then, and then refer them. So certainly developing, you know, that referral resources is not on, on the backs of the ER doctors. But just know that there's this effective treatment now that's pretty safe that we know increases that patient's chances of getting into recovery and staying in recovery. Okay. I like that. And I mean... The way that we have it at our shop, and I'm sure many places do, we, we it's epic. We use a smart phrase, and it pulls in all of the detox centers in the area. What right. would really need to happen if we're going to start embracing this and kind of getting patients on, you know, you give them maybe the two eights or the toll as high as 24 if you're comfortable, dose of that, the Suboxone, and then you set up an infrastructure for these patients who have been handpicked from the epidemic to be followed up within 48 hours, not to just give them numbers, but actually have some sort of referral process in place for these ones who you're really trying to save, you know, and we didn't go into this really, but this is just like in our alcoholics. You're not trying to get someone on a Librium taper who came in intoxicated and then is pissed off a few hours later and wants to leave. You know, the person that's been reversed with Narcan who has no intention of trying to gain sobriety is not who we're talking about here. The patients that are seeking, you know, reprieve from this addiction right. are the ones that we need. And if we can find those, those handpick, handpick those few and try to save them, as you're saying, they're the ones that need this infrastructure in place. Yeah. And these patients, you know, like that's a good example. If somebody's just overdosed and you reverse them, you know, that may not be the right patient. But if you can have a conversation and say, do you want to try Suboxone? You know, first of all, I bet you they've had it before. It's very unlikely that they've been, they have no idea what it is, you know, or they've never taken it before. They say, is that something you'd be interested in? You know, then you could give them a dose and ideally you can say, hey, these are some area resources that have agreed to follow up our patients within 48 hours or 72 hours. Wow. You know, they could, they could leave there feeling better and maybe more optimistic. Sure. 
Yeah. And but I, think, I think we it's have not to everybody. be, yeah, it's we got to be careful everybody. that obviously yeah. like the one that comes out and says, you know, starts cursing and, and ripping out lines right away, maybe not that person, but if, right. if you can have that heart to heart that, Hey, you've come in and you've been reversed, you know, two times this year, you were, you would have died if your buddy didn't come into that bathroom and they have a long, you know, pause and a heart to heart with God. And maybe that's the time to really get them and intervene. I could see that. Um, definitely. But yeah, the the point being that this is for the select few that really you think have a chance of succeeding, and yet we got to put together the the pathway for them to gain that that access and that success. It's just a great tool that we could just that we even have the ability to offer this now. Mm-hmm. You know, I know that. I mean, we never had this like when I was training or in my early years, and, and actually we don't even have it now. It's not even yet on formulary at most hospitals yet. So, but it, it's definitely it's definitely in the pipe, and I think. Uh, it's it's really going to disrupt how we approach a lot of our uh, opiate dependent patients. Absolutely, yeah, Ken. I, I appreciate you taking the time with us and and sort of talking us through your processes, your expertise, your experience, and and how we could possibly be doing better by our patients in this regard. I, I've learned a lot. I know our listeners have. So thanks so much for joining us. Sure. And then we need to get back together and talk about alcohol and benzos and everything else. Oh, I would love to. I've, I've, <laughs> that's that's one of my, not pet peeves, but that's one of my favorites. So we will absolutely do that. Stay tuned, guys. <laughs>